Hey everyone, Aaron here. Just wanted to give a quick content warning up top for this week's episode. As you can probably tell from the title, we're going to be talking about Gone Baby Gone and Wind River. While we've covered movies with serious topics before, these movies contain themes such as sexual assault, rape, child abuse, and neglect, which are central to the plot. Accordingly, this episode is going to be a little more serious and somber. If these topics are not something you're interested in hearing discussed, feel free to skip this episode and you can join us again next time when we'll be covering movies that are a little more lighthearted. With that in mind, let's get to the episode. Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name's Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello. This episode's matchup is about families torn apart by unimaginable tragedy and the efforts of good people to make it right again. It's Gone Baby Gone versus Wind River. So what's everyone's uh, experience with these movies before watching them for the podcast? So I didn't see either of these films in theaters. Um, Gone Baby Gone, I knew about it when it was coming out. And it was like one of those things like, oh, that sounds interesting, but heavy. And I don't want to see it because Ben Affleck sucks. And, you know, I'm an edgy, moody teen. Uh, when Wind River came out, I was like, oh, I want to see that. But I just didn't make the time to go see it. Um, got good reviews at the time as well. Uh, I ended up seeing both these films on Netflix, which they, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, are currently still on, and that's how we watched them. Yeah, definitely some of our easier-to-watch movies, if you're viewing along with the podcast. Um, For me, I saw uh, Wind River in theaters back when uh, Movie Pass was still a thing before its uh, decline into obscurity and bankruptcy. Uh, and then Gone Baby Gone, I watched for the first time uh, with you for the podcast. Uh, so for the bacon number for these movies, uh, they are connected by one other movie. Jeremy Renner and Casey Affleck were both in the movie The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Which is an incredibly beautiful and boring film. <laughs> it can be both. Both of these movies have scored a commanding 7.7 on IMDb, but one of them must be better than the other. Uh, Let's find out. So, Gone Baby Gone is our first movie. It's a 2007 film based on a novel by Dennis Lehane, uh, directed by Ben Affleck and written by Ben Affleck and Aaron Stockard. As a writer and director, Ben Affleck is best known for this movie, The Town, as its writer and director, Argo as a director, and Goodwill Hunting as a writer. Uh, Aaron Stockard is written for this movie and The Town. Stockard is also the production assistant on Goodwill Hunting and was an assistant to Matt Damon on The Talented Mr. Ripley. So he's kind of been in the periphery of like the Damon Affleck. Social circle, I guess. The Damon Affleck cinematic universe. Got it. <laughs> um, interesting little side note that you don't have here is that both The Town and apparently Gone Baby Gone are both based on books. Uh, the Town is based on the book Prince of Thieves, I think it's called, or something along those lines. Uh, similar plot, set in Boston. Uh, I didn't look up what else like the novelist Dennis Lehane has written, but that's uh, some fun homework for our listeners at home. <laughs> 
So report back to us. Uh, hit us up at our Twitter at the Match Cut, um, and and tell us what other novels Dennis Lehane has wrote. So on to a brief synopsis of Gone Baby Gone. When four-year-old Amanda McCready disappears from her home, the police make little headway in solving the case. Frustrated and desperate, the girl's aunt, Beatrice McCready, hires two private detectives, Patrick Kenzie and Angie Gennaro. Patrick and Angie freely admit that they have little experience with this type of case, but the family wants them for two reasons. They're not cops, and they know the tough Boston neighborhood in which they all live. Unfortunately, the case breaks poorly, and Amanda is presumed killed after a ransom deal gone wrong. However, a second child abduction two months later reveals new information about Amanda's disappearance, and as Patrick and Angie are about to solve their case, they're faced with a moral dilemma that could tear them apart. So obviously this will be a, a pretty spoiler-heavy uh, cast uh, with these movies kind of being mysteries and who and, and a bit of whodunit, but just very serious true crime dramas in a sense. Like uh, the the flow of Gone Baby Gone definitely feels like oh this is this is logical, this is realistic, this feels like something that was like could happen or did happen, you know? Right, especially that kind of. Uh, misdirect in the middle where it's just kind of like, okay, well, I guess this is the conclusion. And I, I, it was funny when you were watching Gone Baby Gone, I paused it halfway through to take a break. And you're like, wait a minute, there's still <laughs> half a movie left. Yeah, I was just like, okay, interesting choice that, you know, they just end it like this, but I guess I can see the appeal. Um, so, I, yeah. Final warning, if you want to go on without spoilers, uh, both of these movies are great and you should definitely watch them. But from here on out, everything's kind of fair game. So, yeah, um, uh, since now we're going to do spoilers, uh, spoiler halfway through the movie, Amanda McCreary doesn't die. Uh, yeah, it's it's really well constructed how this story, like everything feeds into another and another and another and like you see events it's it doesn't pull any like um fast ones on you where you didn't see something or because you're not you know from boston you didn't pick up on something if if you pay enough attention you can realize there's something going on but that's also not what this movie is about this movie is really kind of posing moral questions to you of what is right in this situation and what would you do in this situation uh what ends up happening is uh, Morgan Freeman's character, who is a captain in the Boston Police Department, who is, uh, his character's name is Jack Doyle, lost a child to a kidnapping. So he created a anti-kidnapping task force and was at the head of it that all their job was to get was to get kids home. And so when some other events occur where Amanda McCreary's mother and Ernstwile father, I don't know if it was the father of Amanda, uh, ripped off a drug dealer. The uncle-in-law? or What is the relation of that one actor, his character? I believe it's the uncle. Yeah, the uncle hears through the wall everything that happens and contacts a police that, uh, that he knows that works for uh, Jack Doyle to orchestrate a kidnapping of Amanda to get her out of the situation that she is in, which is not a great situation. Her mother is a mule for a drug dealer that she ripped off, uh, does drink drinks and does drugs all the time is hardly present is not a good mother. And so yeah. 
you know, isn't exactly providing like this safe sanctuary to raise her child in. Right. But they do show the kid's room. The kid's room is fairly well taken care of. Um, you know, th- th- this movie asks a lot of hard questions of like, what would you do in this scenario? The, the uncle clearly cares about Amanda because he's the one that orchestrates this. He tells a story to uh, Casey Affleck's character, uh, Patrick Kinsey, uh, later on in the movie where he's like, you know, I cared for this girl so much. I helped raise her. He, you know, he read to her every night. He tells a story of when Helen went off on a bender on the beach, they left Amanda in the car. And Amanda was like over, you know, in triple digit temperatures, baking alive, basically hot to the touch. And he delivers it with just like with with gravitas. It was one of those things that's with uh, Titus Welliver definitely does well. Like everyone in this movie is well cast. Yeah, this is something we kind of see in like both movies where there's a lot of deliberate casting. Like if you're going to have a movie take place in Boston, you're going to, you know, have people who look like they came from Boston, who talk like they came from Boston, who aren't like, like there are big names in this movie, like, you know, Morgan Freeman and Ed Harris, Casey Affleck is, you know, making a name for himself, but no one's like so big that um, there's a lot of like really tense scenes and no one is like so big a name or has so big a role that like you feel like they're safe. There's a lot of genuine tension because it's like, well, this situation could go like any direction. Yeah, I mean, you're reasonably sure Casey Affleck's going to make it out. Uh, mm-hmm. Simply because he's also the voiceover narrator of events, which generally speaking points to him being either present uh, and alive at the end of it to be telling it. Yeah. Casey Affleck, of course, as you're mentioning, is from the Boston area. I can't remember what neighborhood from Boston the Afflecks are from, but uh, it's not that far from South yet. I don't know if it's as like hard, quote unquote, Um there's a lot of tense scenes in this movie, though. Like very early on, when the when uh, Patrick and Angie, played by uh, Michelle Monaghan, um, are beginning their investigation, they go to this creepy, seedy dive bar where you know there's certain kind of people there. And it's like you don't go there unless you're one of the people that go there. Yeah, you better have a darn good reason for it. Right, and they go here because they find out the, that this is a place that. Helen hung out at with her, uh, you know, current boyfriend at the time. Um, and they're talking to a guy and who knows uh, Patrick from high school. And oh, Patrick knows a lot of people from high school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very, very typical of the area. And again, it's something that if the, if Casey Affleck wasn't from Boston, I don't think it would sell as well. Mm-hmm. But because he's from there, like his Boston accent is not affected. It is really his accent when he, you know, he puts it on. Like it doesn't see, he doesn't seem out of place. I'd also say this is probably my favorite Casey Affleck role. I mean, he's not been in an overabundance of films, but the films he's in, he's usually really solid in. But I think this, I'm really surprised he doesn't, he doesn't have leading role in a lot more other films. Yeah, I, I definitely think he's, you know, whatever the Hollywood term is, viable as a as a leading man. Um, but yeah, great support as well. Uh, something I have written down just to go back a little bit, like I could 
probably do without like the opening narration in movies. I get that you've got you're on a, a time constraint and you've got to impart so many details in such amount of time, but kind of in the opening of the movie, I was like, uh, you know, did we have to do the opening narration? I would have preferred something that maybe jumped right in. But. I think what the the feel they're going for is like a real modern noir film rather than like, yeah. you know, a gumshoe detective kind of thing. I mean, they're set up as a detective couple, which there's, you know, a classic series of movies that have detective couples. Um, but again, everything is grounded. And so I think that's like, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a bit of a thing from the studio, but unlike some other things where the studio requests that, I think it plays over well to like the in the middle of the movie when you're like, you've kind of forgotten some things and some plot threads that have uh, occurred and they go back to him and the open, then his narration returning helps to re- remind you of, Oh yeah, this is kind of real life and all this. Yeah, I I definitely looking at it through the lens of like, okay, this is, you know, neo noir or whatever you want to call it like that. That helps a little bit for me. It's just it was a little like, okay, this is the direction we're going. Yeah, I I can understand where you're coming from. Uh, To me, it doesn't take me out of it. Like, say, the original Blade Runner theatrical cuts narration takes me out of it. Because that's so much like you're an idiot and won't understand these things. Whereas this is kind of like, here's how I set up my character without giving you extraneous background detail and keeping the actual action of the movie focused on the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so in the opening narration, he talks about how, you know, he's a private detective and he's able to do things the cops aren't able to do because of his connections in the neighborhood. And going back to the scene I was talking about, the, the guy who knew him from high school starts telling him things the cops had no idea about that um, Helen McCreary was, you know, doing lines of cocaine in the bathroom and who she was doing lines with and all that. And then an altercation comes up where another guy at the bar tells him, you know, to mind your fucking business and don't talk out of turn. And it escalates, and Casey Affleck's character, Patrick, has to pull his gun on a guy. Mm-hmm. Which is, is even though it's a little bit of like a diminutive gun, it's treated very seriously. Like, it's right. a fucking gun, and he's pulled it on you. Because this is real life. <laughs> You're within range of this gun, no matter how small it is. Yeah, it's like, because it's real life, you know, a gun will kill it, and he's pulled it means, like, this is... You know, everyone kind of knows where everyone sits. They've all probably had brawls in the past and they got drunk. And you find out later, Patrick Kenzie wasn't always a straight and narrow guy. He used to do cocaine himself a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that he his gun as a is to help to help him get out of there safe. And he was very much worried about uh, his. Are they married or the just longtime boyfriend girlfriend? Him and Angie. Uh, I believe they're. Just boyfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. So uh, there's an implied threat to her as a woman, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, of what's going to happen. And so they have to get out of there. And it's it's a very tense situation, but very grounded. Um, one thing leads to another. And uh, the drug dealer that Helen uh, McCready uh, works for Patrick knows him because he was friends with his brother. Uh, the the drug lord's name is Cheese. Uh, 
And um, he actually utters the titular line, gone, baby, gone. Uh, and it's actually not cheesy. It's It sounds like a cheesy thing, but they work it in really well as an implied threat in this tense situation where they think Cheese has Amanda and that he's holding her ransom for the $125,000 that Helen and her boyfriend ripped off. Yeah, the, the tension, like the way the tension builds in that bar scene is really good. There's kind of like it all it all starts out with like kind of veiled verbal stuff and then not so veiled and then like direct threats and then, you know, the gun gets pulled and then there's actual like physical violence. A, a lot of these scenes, especially like that scene and the meeting with cheese and then, you know, some more armed uh, encounters later all fantastic yeah there um it's just a it's just a well plotted movie that um it's it's hard to fault any part of this the interesting thing behind the scenes of this film is this was kind of ben affleck's redemption in hollywood uh not that long before he had been in a string of poorly received movies daredevil paycheck and then the thing that kind of ended it for a while for him was geely yeah, the duo movie that he did with his at the time significant relationship, uh, Jennifer Lopez. Did they get married? Uh, they did not get married. Him and Jennifer Garner got married. They have since divorced. Okay, he's got Jennifer. a type. This girl's named Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer Garner, whom he met on the set of Daredevil. That's right, because oh she played Electra. I'm so glad there's been a better Daredevil since then. Yes, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it wasn't a hundred percent Affleck's fault. It's just the movies they were making were not great. But that is technically a Marvel film. Uh, it was under the Marvel Studio thing, same as uh, Blade, and um, God, the, gosh, there was one other. Uh, anyway, not that important. Um, oh, the Spider-Man films, duh, right? Uh, but. Um, so halfway through the film, uh, a, a, an exchange goes wrong, and you think Amanda is dead. And so it's like, I'm really feeling bad right now. <laughs> yeah. It, and it definitely, like, sits on it enough that, like, maybe you share some feelings, like, in that moment analogous to, like, what Amanda's parents would be feeling. It's like, okay, you know, we've really got to, like, sit and, and reflect on this fact that, all right, maybe she's not coming back. Like maybe she's gone. I think the the pacing in that like kind of false end like works pretty well to to have that kind of sit with the audience. Yeah, and then it brings back something that they bring up. They they have a guy that they wanna they wanna um, go after in the beginning before Patrick Kinsey and Dan Gennaro brought onto the case uh, Corwin Earl, who is a recently paroled. Uh, sex offender but mm -hmm. his MO doesn't fit he likes little boys not little girls but it's a similar age frame who knows if it changed in prison um, they have credible information that Corwin was talking to his cellmate about getting something to get his family together which includes uh, two people that are uh, smackheads I can't remember exactly what drug they were doing was it heroin I think it was heroin, yeah. Yeah, that uh, kind of have Corwin uh, in this. 
there's a scene uh, where, uh, again, owing to his uh, neighborhood roots, Patrick Kenzie is friends with a local drug dealer um, who they're buddies with. And so, yeah, I'll keep an, you know my ear out for these people. And if I hear anything, you'll be the first to know because it's, it's fucked up. I don't fuck with these people. Yeah. Not not much sympathy anywhere for uh, child molesters. No, it's it's almost like they're reprehensible individuals. Mm-hmm. But anyway, months later when the little boy is abducted and, you know, Patrick Kenzie is not surprised, he gets a call from his drug dealer. Is that drug dealer Bubba? Yeah, Bubba. Uh, Bubba played by a guy named Slane. I don't know if that is if he is a, a rapper. That would make sense. Uh, he also acts in the town as one of the bank robbers. So I guess he has a, he's either friends with or has a good working relationship with the Afflecks and that crew. Uh, might be that they did actually grow up together. Again, their uh, real life in uh, informing and enforcing and, and strengthening the performances of this. But uh, Slane has Casey, uh, Patrick Kenzie, uh, ride along with him to deliver some drugs to find out, you know, if the if the these people have the boy or if the Corwin Earl is there. They do confirm that he's there. He contacts uh, Remy Bassant and yeah, uh, Remy Bassant and Nick Poole, who he worked with on the Amanda case, to come and find this uh, this little boy. They go in without backup. Uh, Nick Poole takes a few rounds, uh, and Casey or uh, and Patrick Kenzie has to go in and help Remy clear the house. Again, a very tense gun scene, um, and it, it poses like one of the the, the moral questions. Uh, again, spoiler: uh, Corwin Earl has uh, sodomized the young boy and killed him. Uh, I can't remember. Mm. I, I assume it was from rectal bleeding from tearing the the the. Yeah, anus. there was there was blood in the underwear, and uh, you know the boy was dead in the bathtub. Like it's something you put two and two together, and you know. Yeah, and so Casey Affleck uh, executes him, shoots him right in the back of the head, and mm-hmm. he's dead. Uh, to which most people are like. Yeah, you did a good job. Good thing. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, Casey, or uh, sorry, Patrick is kind of internally conflicted. It's like, okay, well. He's got that Catholic guilt. Because he's yeah. from Boston. He's ca- Irish Catholic. <laughs> you know, does does one crime, or does one crime excuse another crime? Right, and that's kind of the moral quandary. Like, does doing a bad thing for the right reasons make it a good thing? And you realize that kind of becomes the thesis for the last act when, when Patrick starts picking at a thing because he remembers that Lionel McCreary said he'd never met Remy Bassant, uh, but Remy Bassant tells him outside the hospital when they're waiting to hear about uh, Nick Poole, who was in critical condition and could go either way, um, that Remy or that Lionel was an informant for Remy. And told him about a guy, and he's telling him about uh, this drug bust that they did, where they were supposed to be drugs, there wasn't any drugs, but there was a kid that was being neglected. And uh, the the absolute filth of the house was in stark contrast to the room of the child that was immaculate. Mm-hmm. 
and um, the child is just desperate to show his multiple his addition to someone for attention, and he's you know mildly malnourished. So Remy planted evidence so that the child could get in protective custody, go into the system, and hopefully be adopted out, and the drug dealing parents would be put down and behind bars. And he's kind of relating, it's like, you know, I did a wrong thing, but it was for the right reasons. And he kind of says to, because Patrick Kinsey is still kind of bristling, he killed a guy, you know, murders a sin. It's like, and he asks, would you do it again? It's like, no, but that doesn't make it wrong. doesn't make it right, but it doesn't make it wrong. And it's kind of like playing with that gray area. It's like, what would you do in their shoes? Yeah. It's a, it's a real tough quandary. And, uh, yeah, I uh, I have I don't want to say relevant personal experience, but like tangentially related personal experience. I sat on a jury for a uh, child molestation case. Yeah, and it's it's tough to I say we eventually found the person guilty of sexually assaulting his uh, four year old cousin, <clears throat> and it's real tough to like. I think give that person a fair trial, like, because it's such, it's such a, it's a, it's a tough thing to be confronted with that. Like this happens in the world and it's impossible to, I think, remain a hundred percent impartial. I know our jury selection took three days. Yeah. How do you find an impartial jury? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. How do you find an impartial jury in that case? You know, it's yeah, nearly impossible. It's a, it's a very powerful subject to like kind of sit and reminisce on. And I think like, I mean, how long was your deliberation? If that's something you can talk about. Uh, the deliberation took, uh, it didn't take too long. It took, I think a couple hours. Yeah. Um, the evidence was overwhelming, you know, overwhelming beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. You know, that this guy was guilty. So, uh, another uh, personal thing, like, you know, it's really hard to, you put yourself in the shoes, like, in this, but um, as you ha- were part of the foster system and were adopted, did you feel anything for, like, those situations that the stories that they were telling or the eventual conclusion of what happened to Amanda, like, do you sympathize? Do you empathize? Do you think what Jack Doyle, Remy Bassant, Nick Poole, and Lionel uh, McCready were doing? Do you think that was right, or do you think what Casey, what what Patrick Kinsey does, was right? I mean, I guess to kind of kind of outline it for people who haven't seen the movie, basically they set up this entire thing with the drug dealer, the uncle did to uh, take Amanda away, and she goes to live with. Morgan Freeman's character, Jack Doyle, the uh, police chief in his like retirement. Um, so for me, for my adoption was, was different um, because I was adopted from birth. So I never like I, my birth parents, my biological parents um, were college students and like unprepared to care for a baby in the world. I don't, I don't think they had like, you know, full-time jobs or, you know, obviously in the middle of college, didn't have the free time or the resources. So, you know, I was 
put up for adoption, all I've known is kind of the family I was adopted into. I didn't have a, a period of childhood where, you know, I wasn't cared for. So I, I relate with it in that, like, you know, I would hate to see a child grow up in a, in a environment where they're not cared for, don't have the family doesn't have all the resources they need, but I can't necessarily relate to it on a personal experience, just more of an acknowledgement of like, you know, there, but for the grace of God and good people in this world, that could have been me. But do you, so, I mean, that kind of asks the question though, what do you think is right? Do you think that they were in the right? Or do you think that Patrick Kenzie was in the right? Because the argument that Remy, Jack Doyle, and, and to a lesser extent, Nick make is that, Helen McCreary is a scumbag. She's she's dirt. She's not going to change. People don't change. Jack Doyle says that explicitly to Patrick Kimsey in the in their confrontation that people don't change. You know, I'm trying to save this little girl from a life of being this in the same position as her mother, you know, strung out on drugs. You know, how long is it before she has kids of her own doing the same thing? Like, right? I can. You know, it's a good thing that I'm doing. And Patrick Kinsey fires back. It's the wrong thing. You've taken that child from their, from their, their parents. And you know damn well what that's like to lose a child. You had a child lost. I can't in good conscience let you keep this girl. And if I do regret it in my old age, if Amanda comes to me when she's older and says, why'd you take me from that? I can live with that. I can take that guilt because that will be my cross to bear. But I can't now. He do, he gives a really powerful performance where he just kind of refutes it. And, you know, I feel he definitely has the moral high ground. It's like, these are people that are supposed to enforce the law. And everyone around him, uh, Angie, is there too and says that they should let Amanda stay here. That mm -hmm. it's what's best for the girl. And Patrick is basically like, please don't make me choose this. Like, don't make me choose between you and doing what is right. Yeah. I I think it's it's a whole movie of people, like, doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Yeah. Except for so, Patrick, really. Yeah, basically. I think that in a, in a society, <laughs> uh, I think that in this, in this thing, like, in this world, you know, it represents the, it is part of our world. It's not a fictional made up circumstance. Uh, like there are legal avenues in place to, you know, get children out of this situation. Like there's problems with the efficacy and like, I don't think the foster system is a perfect system, but as much as there are, you know, people with good intentions who want to take Amanda from her home and forcibly relocate her. I think there are also people with good intentions who are willing to take the right path. And, you know, hopefully that would be the case for Amanda in this, in this hypothetical, you know, we'll never know, but I think the, the solution is, Hey, you gotta, you gotta do what's, what's legally right. And she's got to stay with her parents. Well, her mother at the very least her, yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they make the, when you first meet Helen McCready, she's in her living room. It's a mess, dirty, disgusting. You 
probably seen a place like this, you know, that friend that doesn't clean up or is depressed or what have you, uh, or if you've bought drugs from a, a dealer, <laughs> you know what your dealer's place normally looks like. It kind of looks like that. Um, but after all is said and done and Amanda is returned to Helen, you cut back months later and, and Patrick is checking in on Helen and the house is cleaned up a lot better. Uh, Helen seems to be more put together. She doesn't seem to be on drugs. She seems to be more there. Uh, and she's, yeah. she's very, the actress played it very well. I think you said Amy Ryan, who played Helen, like won multiple awards for her performance, which deservingly should. Um, she's about to go on a date and doesn't have a sitter uh, unless her friend shows up. Her friend also not a great person. But uh, Patrick uh, offers to stay and watch Amanda for her. And, you know, Helen goes, she likes you. Like, you know, very much like, well, of course she likes him, you know. Because <laughs> he, yeah. he, he's a nice guy. We've seen that he's, you know, a good guy willing to do the right thing. But, uh, you know, it, 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 the movie ends with us looking at them watching TV together. And we're left wondering, and like you can tell, kind of from his, from Patrick Kinsey's face, that like he feels he did, did the right thing, but he'll never know a hundred percent one way or the other until it plays out. And so yeah. it seems like he's going to be at least a tangential part of her life. Yeah, we do, we do get a good look at, at least like at least it's heading in a positive direction. Yeah, and uh, but something I didn't realize until I like sat down and read a synopsis of the film was that one of the things that's revealed in that ending scene is that um, Helen got the name of her daughter's doll wrong. I guess she thought it was Mirabelle, but it's actually Annabelle. Uh -huh. So there's kind of like this, yes, things are heading in the right direction, but also like, oh, uh, she doesn't, you know, maybe pay as much attention as she should. And granted, that was something that happened, you know, in the throes of her drug addiction when she was in a, a worse place. But it's it's still kind of this mixed like upward to like two steps forward one step back kind of thing. Huh. I actually didn't catch that until you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Uh, credit to whoever wrote this Wikipedia article on Gone Baby Gone. <laughs> I think everyone gives a really stellar performance in this. I don't think there was anyone that was weak. Um, even like the bit players and the one scene wonders were really good. Uh, mm -hmm. there's a great, uh, scene with, uh, Michael Kenneth Williams, who plays Omar in the wire. Yeah. They introduce him very briefly at the funeral for Nick Poole, where, you know, other cops are coming up and like, you know, saying, Hey, good job on that Coke Kerwin Earl business, you know, to Patrick Kenzie. And he's, you know, not feeling great about it still. <laughs> <laughs> good job killing that guy. <laughs> Ooh. But you know, I, I can't say in some of these situations I wouldn't do a similar thing. Mm -hmm. And like, you have to ask yourself though, like, if you were placed in Patrick Kinsey's position, would you have the moral fiber to go against the woman you love saying it, a man who is respected and you know knows what it's like saying it, your own personal experience with these people, the the, the McCreerys and all that? Would you have the strength? to do the the criminal justice system ju version of justice. 
and in a sense, the more moral version of justice. Yeah, fingers crossed none of us are faced with that conundrum, but it is definitely something to think about. And I think a very, very provoking question and, and a strong, strong part of this movie. So I, I think that's uh, what we've got to say about this movie. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add? I think we're good. When we uh, come back from a short break, we'll be talking about Wind River. See you in a minute. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, a quick note before we begin here. This recording is made is being made um, after our original recording of Gone Baby Gone because the recording we did for Wind River wasn't quite up to the standards that we were comfortable uh, releasing. So this is being done after the fact. As such, we may repeat things we've already said or miss callbacks to stuff we said earlier. Uh, so without further ado, let's begin. Wind River is a 2017 film uh, written and directed by Taylor Sheerden. Taylor Sheridan is best known for his writing on this movie as well and directing uh, as well as Sicario, Hell or High Water, and the TV show Yellowstone, which he also directs. Deep in the vast and unforgiving territory of the Wind River Indian Reservation, seasoned tracker for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Corey Lambert discovers the frozen body of a young Arapaho woman, Natalie. She is miles from the nearest shelter, beaten, barefoot, and shows signs of rape. The crime falls under the jurisdiction of the FBI, and inexperienced agent Jane Banner is dispatched to investigate. Out of her depth and running up against bureaucratic obstacles, Jane comes to rely on Corey's help to find justice for Natalie, who is driven by his own past. Corey devotes himself fully to the investigation. So yeah, another another very serious, powerful, moving movie following on from Gone Baby Gone. Um, however, this maybe just me the opening of this movie where we see natalie running through the snow to me almost had like a comedic feel to it i don't know if it struck you the same way i mean not comedic you kind of don't know what you're in for the first time you watch this film i think it's uh it's definitely should be said that while i think this film is one of my favorites especially of the year it came out that it does benefit from at least two viewings um, it does its tone very well, you know, from scene to scene, there is a constant, like, overwhelming sorrow, as weird as that sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, it doesn't let up. There's the scene where Elizabeth Olsen's character goes to question the parents of Natalie, uh, the father played by Gil Birmingham, is very combative. Uh, and then you, and the wife isn't present and she goes to question the wife who is, uh, cutting herself in despair and agony. It is just, it is portrayed as very bleak and like, uh, Graham Greene's, uh, character Ben, who is the tribal police chief, does, uh, caution Jane and Warner, do not go back there. It, it's not worth it. Yeah. You're, you're not going to get anything out of it. Whereas, whereas, um, Gil Birmingham's uh, father character is uh, sarcastically like, be my guest, you know? Yeah. Like, in a very, like, you're going to do it anyway. And so F you government person that is just another line in a long line of government people to not really care. 
Yeah, like he knows the score. He knows that like the FBI is putting forward their their token effort to like, yes, we're going to put something down on paper. We looked at this, blah, 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 but it's not going to be effective. As far as like the opening being comedic, I would only say that like initially viewing it remote when you don't know the context of it yet. Of course, I don't think that like what happens in this movie is funny. Just the opening, the shot of the lone woman running. I would say comedic is definitely not what I felt when I first watched it. I was intrigued, concerned, uh, didn't know where the film was going with that, what it was showing us yet. Again, I, I, I'm just going to reiterate the point I made a, a, a moment ago that this film definitely benefits from at least one more watch. Uh, yeah. Whereas Gone Baby Gone is a little bit easier overall to watch in one setting and to get exactly what is going on. It's not that it is an inherently superior screenplay or film. It's just that there's a lot more nuance to some of the relations that you don't pick up on the first time that like, there's a lot of show don't tell going on in wind river. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think it's also hard to maybe understand the relationship that the characters all have together just because, like if you're not paying close attention to the last names or it's or whatever the case, if if you're not paying full attention, it's going to get by you. And a second watch can definitely remedy that. Yeah, it's. Uh, however, I will say that this is a film I have voluntarily watched like four or five times now. Um, mm -hmm. It is it's it's a film that's haunting. It, it stays with me. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, doesn't really let up in its tone again. Uh, so, you know, you move from finding the body to notifying the parents. And again, uh, Gilbert Ringham is Martin, uh, like sobbing whale crying when mm -hmm. uh, Corey Lambert comes to comfort him because Corey Lambert, you find out from multiple watches or just a second watch is the father of the 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 best friend who died a few years previously yeah and like the same thing that happened to Corey's girl has now happened to martin's girl and it's just one of those things like you don't understand why it's so important to him until about halfway through the movie when he relates the story to elizabeth olsen of why He's so invested. She literally goes to his cabin to ask him, you know, why she's helping or why he's helping so much. What is he involved in? And he volunteers the information before she really even asks the question. Yeah. I think one of the things um, that stands out in this movie is if you have a movie that, okay, there's a, you know, if you have a murder mystery, the typical focus of a murder mystery is like, we're going to focus on the detectives or the authorities, whatever it is, you know, the people affected by this are going to be secondary characters and we're not going to delve too much into their feelings or what they're going through where this movie really does take the time to um, show what would the death of a, of a child and a family do to that family the mystery, of course, is interesting and it's it gets its screen time, but 
you know, just kind of skip ahead to the end of this movie, you have a 10 minute scene that is basically like the fallout of this case. Like the mystery is solved. We know who did it. They got their punishment, you know, not exactly through the legal system, but I mean, it's, it's a better justice than would be served by, in a sense, taking this guy to court. Yeah. What, I mean, what, what would they learn if, if, uh, Pete went to jail. What would they get? Oh, right. I'm very sorry that I did the thing. And uh, I will say that Pete is played so unlikably and hatefully by the actor that, like, man, he did such a good job playing a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. There is a scene later in the film in the third act when uh, Corey tribal police and uh, some local police go to a local uh, shale oil uh, fracking site that is off season uh, to see if the cameras on the, all around the perimeter picked up anything from uh, Natalie running. And cause she came roughly from that direction. They've tracked the, the, the trail of everything has led to that direction. So something happened there. They, uh, up until this point, they've assumed that the boyfriend that no one knew she had, that they knew she had, they didn't know who he was or what he did, had probably done it. That uh, was a bit spoiled when they find his dead body. Mm-hmm. So they, their number one killer, you know, suspect is gone. So they're following up a lead to go to the uh, the energy site, and uh, you, when they're trying to find the roommate of the man uh, Matt, who is played by. Uh, I just forgot his name. What is his name? John Barenthal. Thank you. That is really dumb that I forgot his name. John Barenthal, who plays Matt, his uh, trailer uh, roommate, Pete, you see a flashback to the event that led up to Natalie's death. It's um, yeah. pretty, like, the thing that I, I really, I think that stays with me is how real and grounded everything feels. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, Pete and the 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 rest of the the security at the the, the drilling site uh, come back and they're drunk. They were partying in town. Um, Matt thought they would all stay in town that night, and so Natalie. It was supposed to be like a little kind of secret rendezvous where they could be alone together, and just yeah, uh, it escalates very believably with a whole bunch of you know drunk men with more booze than sense and nothing to do, mm-hmm. and. And so when Pete won't take no for an answer to see Natalie's underwear, Matt gets upset, angry, and physically removes Pete. And it just devolves from there where they, they beat him to death. The whole second half of this movie is is very strong. Like starting, like you get the confrontation at the trailer, then you get the flashback, then you get the shootout, then like the revenge porn, and then... <laughs> You know, you're you're 10 minutes of unpacking and like just crying and, you know, men sharing their feelings. Yeah, I think one of the the best things to keep this movie like grounded and like, you know, at the end, you feel a little bit better about it all. Like they got the bad guy. They killed him. You know, they they can maybe move on. They won't be ever whole again. But, you know, justice was served. And then it ends with a fade to black text of there are. There are statistics gathered for all women of all nationalities except Native American women for missing. We don't know how many are missing. It's like, oh, now I feel worse somehow. Because <laughs> it's yeah. like, 
Yeah, this story is a very personal story to Taylor Sheardon. He has spent numerous hours voluntarily, obviously, on the Wind River Reservation. You know, he's from the a little bit of a, a bygone age of kind of cowboys and, uh, you know, natives uh, and just hung out. And he has many friends. And I think that this story was extremely personal to him. And I think that also helps capture um, some of the stuff with the environment like the environment itself also kind of feels like another character, like partially yeah. because it's 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 partly responsible for Natalie's death or it's a factor. But the the environment isn't something that has been tamed necessarily. It's still like its own force. You get that uh, you get that talk at the end with Corey telling, you know, Elizabeth Olsen's uh, uh, character that um you know, luck exists in the city. You know, you, you, you earned your life. You were stronger than those that, you know, tried to kill you, you know, luck, you know, they don't, you know, wolves don't kill an unlucky deer. They kill the weak ones, the strong survive kind of thing to help her, you know, feel better about the fact that everyone around her died (laughs) before. And she would have too had Corey not shown up and, uh, fucked up the the security force something that also contributes to this you know being a believable and and heartfelt story is you know similar to gone baby gone where you felt you know okay these people all grew up in boston or like have existed in this area like there's representative casting you know in this movie where you know there was a there was a conscious decision to put Native American actors in Native American roles. Yeah. And if, you know, regrettably, Scarlett Johansson's kind of become the poster child for this, but thank God Scarlett Johansson's not in this movie as, like, <laughs> you know, Natalie's mother or something. Yeah, there there was some flack this movie got, because I believe the girl that plays Natalie, uh, Kelsey Esbelli, is not Native, or there, there was someone who was not Native, and I believe it's her. I think she is... Um, Thai, or she's she is of Asian descent. Yeah, um, she's born in born in South Carolina, but yeah. So I mean, this movie did get some flack. Uh, this movie also the unfortunate timing of releasing right when the uh, the allegations against Weinstein, who are the original distributors of this film, uh, mm-hmm. were coming to light. Uh, and so, a film about the the rape and murder of a young woman being produced and distributed by a murdering uh or not a murdering maybe he murdered people <laughs> he murdered people's careers by yeah. a predator as prolific as unfortunate as it is of harvey weinstein's level um kind of definitely hurt the film in the box office uh, i know when i originally watched it it was has been miramax has been scrubbed from the film uh other another distribution company either picked it up or just they scrubbed it from uh, digital release and home uh, video release. Yeah. I believe, uh, I think it was Lionsgate took over. Yeah. Uh, which I mean is to the movie's benefit. Cause when I watched it, I had no idea. I remember wanting to have seen it when it came, when it was first in theaters, but uh, not getting around to it. Um, another thing that's great about this movie that definitely again, helps with the tone of the film overall um, the music is done by Nick Cave, uh, Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds, kind of a, a famous, he's got that low kind of like Leonard Cohen style voice. 
mm-hmm. um, where it's it's very like this guy's lived a life and has a lot of texture to his sound. And there's a haunting wailing song that is repeated throughout the film to let you know, like just is full of sorrow. Um, the movie opens with uh, a poem that was done by uh, Corey Lambert's daughter that got her into a, a summer writing program at Colorado State. She basically, there's another theme throughout this film of unable to escape the reservation, which is true mm-hmm. of many people of native descent is you can't, you may want to leave this land that is where the federal government said you had to live, but you can't for X, Y, or Z reason. And so Natalie and um, what is his daughter's name? Was it Emily or? Um, that sounds right. Uh, I believe Emily, uh, correct us if we're wrong and yell at us for being idiots. Uh, Natalie and Emily were very close and they both had a clear cut way to get out of the the reservation. And then, you know, the reservation took them, it, you know, there's a scene where, uh, Chip, uh, play, uh, who is, um, da, 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 uh, Martin's son, who's a, a bit estranged, you know, and, and, uh, Corey Lambert are talking to each other. And he's like, you know, look what uh, the reservation has taken from me. Look what it took from you. You know, it's, it doesn't leave anyone untouched. The first shot you get of Wind River Indian Reservation is gunshots through the the signpost and an American flag that is tattered and torn upside down in the international sign of distress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a good place to live. You're, and the movie uh, you know reiterates that with uh, Graham Greene's Ben uh, telling you, you know, they have four officers to patrol. Uh, a reservation the size of Rhode Island. Yeah. And also like, you know, when you have this, this ending scene where, um, Martin, you know, with his death face and like, well, what does it mean? I don't know. I just made it up. But you know, when he's, when he's going through his grieving process, you know, he finally realizes like, Hey, I'm getting a, you know, I'm getting a second chance at, you know, seeing my son again, or he called me for the first time. He's like, well, where he's, where's he at? He's always at the, you know, sheriff's station. Right. I mean, he was arrested earlier in the film. Back in, you know, back in trouble again, that kind of cycle. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, this is a film that could only be done by someone who is intimately familiar with reservation life. Even if he is a white man, like Taylor Sheridan is like, Again, the, the, the key thing about both these films is they are both made by people that lived and breathed the areas. You know, Ben Affleck and Casey Affleck grew up in Boston. I don't think Southie specifically, but they spent time in Southie and time where the, the that movie took place. And Taylor Sheridan has been to the Wind River Indian Reservation many times in his life. And that's just something you don't get, like, you know, someone writing about, you know, a murder case or something that they've read a lot about and they may have a, a, a true drive to see those stories told. But um, there's something to be said for having lived it in a personal experience that doesn't translate anywhere else. Yeah. And I think like kind of every, everything we've said, all of our feelings about this movie, like obviously come from that. Like it's, it's, it's impactful and profound and you know, all those box quote kind of words, but it's, yeah. it's true for this movie. 
I would say you do definitely like finish this movie a little bit drained. I mean, I think Gone Baby Gone does the similar thing where you just, because it's asking these hard questions and because it feels so real, like you're really confronted with, you know, these situations going on, what would I do? Or would I have the, the fortitude to carry through what like Corey does to continue pursuing people that killed his daughter's best friend? I think there's also something to be said that Jeremy Renner is the father of a young girl and she was a few years old when this movie came out. And that definitely, I think, made the movie more personal for him. He would probably do something similar, you know, or wish to do as much as possible if something happened to his daughter like this. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it in the, you know, Gone Baby Gone discussion, but, you know, because I, I feel like you're very sure about your feelings with with Pete here in this movie. You know, in that situation, as difficult as it would be to put yourself in that position, like, what do you think you would do? Uh, would, like, to hear Pete's side of things, to get his confession, and then to, you know watch him die or you know yeah like the the decision Corey makes you know say you're not in that position but you're living a story of that position like what do you do in that circumstance i wouldn't even let him run away to be honest if he admits to doing what he did like Mm -hmm. the fact that you know he says you won't even make it 600 yards or 600 feet uh yeah when he was free to go he wanted to die screaming basically, uh, or, mm. you know, run and he asphyxiates on his own blood the same way that Natalie died. And, you know, one of the, 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 the line that really gets me in this film is when Jane, uh, Banner, Elizabeth Olsen's FBI characters in the, the hospital and she breaks down crying when, uh, she remembers how far Natalie ran in the cold without shoes you know, she ran six miles before she died. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Corey earlier in the film is asked by Jane, you know, how far could someone run in these conditions? He goes, I don't know. How do you gauge someone's will to live? Yeah. And he says, I knew that girl, you know, she was a warrior. So however far you think she ran, she ran further. And yeah. then you see an adult male who has not been through, uh, you know, been through a traumatic experience, but like, you know, has every chance that she, she did, uh, doesn't even make it 600 feet. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, maybe this, this is kind of just echoing my feelings, I think with the situation gone, baby gone as well. But I feel, yeah, I don't know that it's no matter what someone's done. I don't know if like, taking the law into your own hands like that is ever justified. I mean, again, what kind of justice would Natalie get by sending him through the courts? You know, it would be wrapped up in bureaucratic red tape. Um, You know, would they even charge him with the death of Natalie? They can prosecute it, but can they prove that he did it? Especially with Corey's involvement, he's not a, you know, a federal officer of the law. The fact that he abducted him and, and coerced the confession would make it inadmissible or admissible. What's the inadmissible, right? Inadmissible, yeah. Would make it inadmissible, especially if he pleads the fifth. You know, 
all the members of the the the, the drilling uh, security team that could corroborate his story for plea deals, they're all dead. All the cops that were there, except for Jane, they're dead too. Um, so what what justice would she have gotten in a federal court is slim to none. They would probably charge Pete with the, you know, being party to a criminal conspiracy to conceal, you know, an incident that happened. They might be able to positively charge him with uh, Matt's death, who mm-hmm. was, you know, beaten to death. And uh, I think John Barenthal does an amazing role uh, in this, where, you know, up until the point where they, they give you the flashback, you're kind of thinking that he, he might have been a scumbag, you know, something happened. And yeah. it went wrong. Uh, but you see in the, in the events that he chooses to die to give Natalie a chance at escaping. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they're, you know, beating on him and kicking him, he he looks her in the eye and and says, go. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's 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 a very difficult question, you know, carries a lot of baggage with it. But. It's uh, it's tough. It's tough to say. Um, I guess you know. I don't know. For me, I would never know until I'm in that situation, and God willing, I never am. <laughs> you you can't know. Like, would you do differently? Would you do it at all? But I, I think some of that does have to do with the fact that Taylor Sheridan is, is kind of writing modern westerns with these. You know, mm-hmm. Hell or High Water is a very typical like farm is going under we got to do something to save it western sicario that he wrote uh he wrote both sicarios actually but the first one is definitely superior is like the mexican western of kind of like lawless frontier lands uh yeah but again the thing i like about sicario is it rings very true to life is like you know what laws really exist yeah and again, you know, you find out in Sicario that Benicio del Toro's character, sorry to spoil it for people, like, you know, monstrous things happened to his family and he was left for dead and he's wreaking vengeance on those responsible. Uh, it's one of the few movies where, like, I was like, damn, they had the balls to do it. Because Benicio del Toro's character shoots children in front mm-hmm. of the father to prove a point. I mean... Hats off to Taylor Sheridan for making thought-provoking, difficult movies. Yeah, I definitely feel that had Sicario 2 been directed by him and not written by him, it would have been a far superior film. Because I feel like that had some last-minute rewrites, some executive nonsense going on. Because the, the narrative didn't feel as focused and as structured as the first film. And seeing this film... And then Sicario 1 and then Sicario 2, Taylor Sheridan is not an incompetent writer. I mean, I believe he was nominated or won an Academy Award for Hell or High Water. So Guy knows how to write these films at the very least. Very true. He did win, or no, sorry, he was nominated for an Oscar for Hell or High Water. Yeah, I mean, you don't get nominated for being bad at your job. Yeah, he, uh, he won the American Indian Movie Award at the American Indian Film Festival for Wind River. It, it definitely deserves more than it got from critical and you know box office response. Yeah. It, it's 
I think the problem with films like this, and it's good that they make them, is, you know, it sucks when you sleep on a film like A Cabin in the Woods or A Bad Times at the El Royale because of how just well done they are and how much of a film they are. Yeah. But when something like this is slept on, it's like, it's understandable because, it, you know, the, the, the previews and whatnot for it, as well as the, the, the write-ups that people were giving it, not that they were bad write-ups. It's like, do I really want to go see a movie about the rape and murder of a, a 17, 18 year old girl? I don't yeah. think so. I'd rather see the most recent Marvel film because <laughs> that's super real. And I got to be in the right headspace for that. Yeah. Uh, this movie was definitely one of those ones where I kind of, like I said, it was in my, my movie past days and I pretty much just like saw the poster. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I'd go see a movie with Jeremy Renner and, and you know, Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah. Um, so I'll go watch it. And, and I had no idea what it was about and it was, <laughs> it was an experience. Yeah. It's one you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, recommend either of these films to a degree uh, that is like, you'll feel better after watching them. It's like, no, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd say you feel a little bit better after the end of Gone Baby Gone because it's, it's not as oppressively sad as uh, this, uh, as this film. Again, I, I feel, again, this film feels more real to me, especially with that at the very end, right? When you, you feel a little modicum of, you know, comfort and uh, something, it just makes it real again by giving you that, the fact that Native American women are not, <laughs> you know, their numbers aren't reported for when they go missing. Yeah. Not, so a, not every case has a Corey Lambert on it. So I, I really wonder if Taylor Sheridan either knew of or was friends with people where this happened to the, like a daughter disappeared or, you know, a girl that he was friends with the brother of, or maybe he was friends with disappeared and he just felt like he needed to tell the story. Mm -hmm. But an incredible watch. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add to this? Uh, I, I don't know if we say it in the, uh, the the finale or the the wrap up of the discussion but I, I i'm gonna reiterate it here i feel like we say it watch both these films i think this is the only time where it's like a tie i think i prefer wind river more but like that's not to say that either of the films should be ignored yeah get yourself in the right headspace carve some time out to watch both of these because they're both incredible and they're both available on netflix so you, yeah. If you have a Netflix subscription like most millennials do, you owe it to yourself to watch these films because they are masterfully done and well-executed pieces of cinema. Yeah. But we must pick a winner, so come back in a second. We'll tell you which one we liked more. We might sound a bit different, and we might uh, reiterate some things we've already said, so forgive us for our ineptitude. Uh, should we talk about both these movies in uh, in comparison? So yeah, uh, I think it is time to get to the conclusion and comparison. Both of these movies, like fantastic casting, like good stories. The tension is is 
palpable and real and well executed and there's there's good like like tension and release you know where there needs to be it's it's real tough to pick to pick a better one out of the two i would definitely agree with you i think uh for me personally uh i'll just relate something that i was molested when i was younger um wind river sticks with me on a more personal level um, I'd say it's probably one of my top five films of all time. Um, it's just very haunting. I, I find myself thinking about scenes or emotions. Um, it still elicits an emotional response in me. Uh, the first time I watched it, I cried. The second time I watched it, I cried. <laughs> the mm-hmm. third time I watched it, I cried. Uh, and uh, at the end, in this time, uh, when Jane breaks down, uh when she remembers that uh, Natalie ran six miles in the snow barefoot, I cried just a little tear this time. Um, Yeah. Just to have that strength, like because the actors sell these situations so real because at the end, it reminds you, I prefer wind river, but I think both these films have incredible merits. I think Gone Baby Gone is a little bit more of a traditional film, whereas mm-hmm. I think uh, Wind River uh, is much more raw of a film. Yeah. Watch them both. I personally prefer Wind River. I don't know. What about you? Uh, I think I'm also going to go for Wind River. Um, I think uh, Wind River for me is helped immensely by its its setting and uh, maybe, you know, a couple fewer characters where you can really explore their relationships and their histories and what, like, what this means to each person, like, involved in it. Like, what does the case mean to Corey? What does the case mean to Jane? What does the case mean to, uh, you know, Ben or, or some of the parents that we see in this movie? Like, there's a really, uh, intense scene of, of, uh, Natalie's mom cutting herself. Yeah. You know, that yeah. we, we didn't necessarily talk about, but it's in there and it's, it's distressing. Right. Like every scene in this film is filled with the, the proper tone that it needs to push the story forward. I think both of these are totally on point, but I think that everything is working in concert in wind river. Whereas it's not necessarily as a hundred percent cohesive in gone baby gone. Not that it's like there's weird, like this random slapstick scene. It's just gone baby gone reminds me a little bit of mystic river, which is also a great film. Whereas I feel that wind river is so unique. And so again, the word I'll use is haunting um, that, multiple rewatches i still get something good out of it uh from a personal level did you mm. do you agree with me that I, that you need that two viewings helps it yeah definitely um my first viewing was i think farther removed from this viewing uh than yours was so i was kind of like i knew the broad broad strokes but um despite having maybe more time to focus on the characters in wind river, I kind of initially forgot about like where the relationships were. And, um, I would say to the, 
sorry to interrupt your point. I would say to the detriment of this film, it does throw a lot of subtle information at you. And as audiences, we're conditioned to react to characters' words rather than the facial reactions. And so that's a detriment from the the lens that we view movies in now than it is, I'd say, the film's fault. To that point, some of the more subtle things I did forget and or, you know, I didn't carry with me after that first viewing. But I feel like now, definitely in that in this second viewing, like us watching it together for the podcast, like that information will stick with me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Also of note is Wind River is the shorter of the two films. I think it has an hour. How long is the runtime on Wind River compared to the runtime on? Gone, baby. Uh, it's only shorter by, uh, gosh, what is that? Seven minutes. Okay. I feel that wind river goes quicker. There's less downtime, less moments to think in it. Um, which is a plus and a minus, I suppose, because the time goes quick. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, anything else before we, uh, move on to the next, uh, to, I guess, move on to wrapping up. I think we can wrap it up, and that's uh, another one in the can, I guess. Yeah. Um, again, both great movies. I'm very reluctant to place one above the other. See them both if you haven't. Uh, I think even with our discussions about it, there's still something to be gained from both of those. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I can still watch Wind River again if I'm in the right mood for it. Uh, these, these are both heavy films, but they're both great films uh i think you're better as an individual for having watched them so yeah uh we'll be back with the next episode i can't remember what the two movies are but if you want to do the stinger go ahead yeah um so this was obviously a more like serious serious discussion uh we definitely have something a little lighter for for next time two massive colorful stylistic uh ensemble films that are i think a real treat to watch stick around join us for that one uh you can subscribe to the podcast now on uh stitcher which is new uh and podbean if anyone in the world uses that uh you can find all of those links on our anchor fm page i've submitted the application to itunes finally so hopefully that's coming very soon and then you know, the other 90% of the world can easily subscribe. <laughs> if you want to get a hold of us, you can either send an email to matchcutpod at gmail.com or uh, find us on Twitter at matchcut. All right. Well, for the matchcut podcast, I've been Matt. And I've been Aaron. We'll see you next time. Next time. <laughs>